0: Well, I hope you'll take your Bibles and open to Mark chapter 15. Mark 15. This morning as we go to the scriptures together, my aim is to convince you that you should be a preacher. That's right. I want to convince all of you, man, woman, and child, that you should be preachers. You should be preparing sermons. You should be preaching sermons, and it's something that you should be doing all the time. But it's probably not helpful for me to tell you, go be preachers and not to give you some instructions. A little help. I've done this a few times now. So I want to convince you that you should be preparing and preaching sermons, and I want to help you start your preparation and give you some tips for preaching. We'll come back to that in a little bit. Last week, we spent time in Mark chapter 15, and we started considering the death of Christ. I don't know if I told you this last week. I've been scared of preaching these passages for a while now. (laughs) It is daunting to think about taking the death of Christ and summarizing it and applying it in a sermon. Here we are. We started in verse 21, and we followed Jesus from the place where he was mocked and beaten Down the road to Golgotha, the place of execution, and we heard about the pain and the suffering and the shame. But at the end of last week, my hope wasn't simply that you'd be able to recount the events of that day. That's important. But the aim was that as we come to the cross and we think about the suffering and death of Christ, that... We could take that and we could see what it means for us. So when we look at the cross and we look at what Christ did, it should help us to understand forgiveness and how forgiveness is possible. When we see what Christ accomplished on the cross, it should make us believe that we really, really, really can be set free from that sin that has plagued us. There's a connection there between what he did and what is now possible. The cross is proof of why we believe what we believe. It is the assurance of our forgiveness. It is the assurance of our victory over sin. And frankly, these are things that we need to be reminded of because most of us are prone to doubt. And so as we ended last week, I told you about this little phrase that I think about often that I heard originally from Jerry Bridges that we should be preaching the gospel to ourselves every day. You should be a preacher. And your primary congregation is yourself. I'm using that word preach. I think Jerry Bridges used that word preach on purpose. What, What I'm pushing you to and what he has pushed me to is not just to meditate on the gospel, although that's important, but to preach the gospel to ourselves. What's what's preaching? Lots of definitions. I made up my own. Preaching is an act of proclaiming something that is true. It's an act of proclamation with the goal of bringing faith and change in the lives of its hearers. Let me say it again. Preaching is the proclamation of truth with the goal... Of change. That's more or less what I set out to do every week, to proclaim true things in hopes that God will use those things to change us. We talked about last week, and what I want to try to unpack more this week is that we should be preaching the gospel to ourselves every day, and that if we do that, friends, I believe this, That if we look at the cross and seriously consider its implications every day, it will change the nature of our relationship with God. It will change the nature of our relationship with one another. Some of us struggle. Some of us have, at times, weak views of forgiveness. What I mean is, you wonder if God could truly forgive you. Some of us lack trust in the goodness of God. We harbor these ongoing struggles with sin and temptation. We don't know how to respond to our own sin, and we certainly don't know how to respond to the sin of our spouse or our kids. And yet, I think if we can learn to believe the gospel and to preach it to ourselves, then it equips us to combat these things but it's going to take work every day. Preaching the gospel to ourselves, the truth about forgiveness, the truth about God and our relationship with God, about how we came into this relationship and what happened when we did. And these are things that we work together through our songs and prayers and the word to remind ourselves of every week, but this just simply isn't enough. And if, we think that this is enough, then perhaps what has happened is we don't understand the breadth of the gospel. So this morning as we come to Mark 15, I want to help you become a better preacher. We're going to look at the death of Christ, a daunting text, but I want us to take it and to think about what Christ did and how what he did should help you tomorrow on Monday to fight that persistent sin. To live with the hope of forgiveness. This can restore relationships as we recognize we're a sinner and they are a sinner and God has a solution for both of our sin. These are truths that should change the way we live and think. And so... This morning, I want to help you learn how to preach these things. The aim is that we would preach good sermons and that those sermons would bring us to greater faith and lasting change. Last week, we looked at the first half of this brutal day. This week, we pick up in the second part where Mark records the actual death of Christ. So we're in Mark chapter 15. We're going to start in verse 33. hope you'll follow along as I read. Hear the word of God. When the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabatini, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, Behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come and take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. There were also women looking on at a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James the younger, and of Joseph and Siloam. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him, and there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem." The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. May God use his word to change us today. You know, when we come to scriptures, there's often this fine line that we have to walk. It's this line between understanding real events that actually happened and at the same time recognizing the spiritual realities that exist behind those events. And that's especially true in our passage today. Because what we have here is a day when the sun goes dark in the middle of the day. It really happened. We believe that. A day when Jesus, who was fully man, really died a physical death. A day when a curtain, thick and unterrible, was torn in two. And so we have all these events that we should think these things happened. We believe they happened. The Bible tells us they happened. They aren't metaphors alone, but they do proclaim spiritual realities. And so as we go through the passage, I want us to keep both these things in mind. Real events that actually happened, and yet God is communicating things that couldn't be seen by those who were there that day. And as we bring it all together, what we should hope to grab onto is this gospel that we can put into sermons that we're going to preach to ourselves tomorrow. Three main points in this sermon that I want to help you prepare. Okay? You can maybe remember these three words. Sin, substitute, access. It's your three-point sermon that I want to encourage you to preach. Sin, substitute, access. And access. As we look at the death of Christ, we see the seriousness of sin. We see Jesus as a substitute for our sin. And we see that through his death, we now have access to God. That's your sermon. Let's look at the text and what happened. If you remember from last week, Mark told us that Jesus was put on the cross at the third hour. This is Jewish rendering of time. For us, this is 9 a.m., Then for three hours, Jesus is hanging there, suffering. Hearing the mocking from those passing by, hearing the mocking from the Jewish leaders, hearing the mocking from the guys on either side. Three excruciating hours. And then the scriptures say at the sixth hour, do you know math? Nine, ten, eleven. At noon, something happens that shows the significance of it all. And we don't know if it happened gradually or if it happened all at once. we were told at noon, it becomes dark. It's noon, but it looks like midnight. And it stays that way. It stays dark from noon till 3, which is not normal, right? And you'll find folks who will try to explain this away. That solar eclipse that happened that day, Except this was Passover, a time of solar eclipses don't happen this time of year. It was a supernatural event, a divine act. God made the sky go dark. And if you know the scriptures, you know that the scriptures have a lot to say. There's a lot of imagery that comes with with light and darkness. Lightness? With light and darkness. Darkness can represent evil. It can represent the absence of the presence of God. Darkness often also represents the judgment of God. And I think that's what we see here. I won't have you raise your hands, but maybe you're making your way through Exodus right now with us. And if you're doing that, then just maybe middle of last week, you read about the plagues that God brought against Egypt. And the ninth one, the the one before the big one, where the firstborn of every Egyptian house was killed, the plague before that was darkness. It's the one just before God saved his people by the shedding of the blood of a lamb. And maybe there's a connection here in Mark 15. That just before the blood of the lamb is slain for the salvation of his people, there's darkness. This final act of symbol of wrath of God, the judgment of God. Jesus would bear the wrath of God for rebellious men. His blood would be shed, and there was darkness. God showing his wrath and foreshadowing the judgment that was to come. And this is one way we see the significance of what's happening. God is preparing to punish his son, to put his only son to death. Why? This brings us to our first point of your sermon. Why did he do that? What's the first word? Sin. As we think about the gospel, it's essential that we understand that sin is the reason Jesus had to die. And yet, we are often prone to minimizing sin, aren't we? Which is why we can be slow to repent. Lazy in our fight against sin dismissive of the scope of our sin. Part of understanding the gospel is understanding my sin is a big deal. And as we preach the gospel to ourselves, this is part of that sermon that we should be preaching. There is no sin that is a small thing. Even the smallest act of rebellion is an act of defiance against a holy God, and all of your sin deserves punishment. How severe is sin? Well, consider the punishment of Christ, and we see the weight, don't we? The sky goes dark, it's a picture of the wrath and the judgment of God that was being poured out. And having this thought in our mind should be a reminder to us of how seriously we should take our sin. So in that moment of temptation, when you're thinking, should I or shouldn't I, the sermon you should be preaching to yourself is, this is the kind of thing for which Christ had to die. It's not just a little thing that doesn't hurt anybody. Sin is a big deal. There had to be a punishment. God poured out his wrath. But what we see here is he didn't pour out his wrath at this time on the whole world. He didn't even pour it out on deserving sinners. He poured it out on the sinless and perfect Son. Verse 34. At the ninth hour, what time is that? Three o'clock. The ninth hour, Jesus cries out with a loud voice Eli, Eli, Lama Sabatini, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? If we go back. Chapter 14, Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, we remember that anguish, that prayer of anguish, that reminder of the humanity of Jesus, that as he looked to the cross, he felt the weight. He knew what he had come to do, and he knew he would bear something that no one else had ever bore before. Something I I think about a lot, and I probably say a lot, crucifixion wasn't unique to Jesus. Jesus. Lots of people got crucified. No one died like this. When Jesus grieved in the garden and when he cries out at the cross, he's not crying out because he was being crucified. He's crying out because he, in that moment, was taking on the sins of the world for which he was going to pay the price. And this is a truth that we get all over Scripture. It's some of the passages that we read together earlier. Isaiah says, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord, think about this. We say it a lot, but think about it. He laid on him the iniquity of us all. This is why Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Isaiah 53.10, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. Galatians 3:13, Christ redeemed us from the curse. how? By becoming a curse for us. 2 Corinthians 5:21, "For our sake says God made him to be sin. Who knew no sin? These passages tell us about the incredible significance of what happened at the cross. Jesus died and God placed on him our sin. He bore the wrath that we deserved. And it's because of what was happening that he cries out this phrase, Eli, Eli, lama sabbatini. There's a whole class in seminary. We learn how to say that so that in times like this, it just comes out. It's Aramaic, okay? It's the language that Jesus probably would have spoke. And there's a few times in Mark when Mark quotes Jesus, but doesn't translate Jesus. He just tells us exactly what Jesus said. But he's writing to Greeks and Romans, and so he does translate. Here's what Jesus said. Here's how it would have sounded. Here's what it means. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What an intense thing to say, and a phrase that lots of debate about what God the Father did or didn't do, what the Son felt or didn't feel. The question is, did God actually turn his back on his son? Did he, for a time, reject Jesus? Well, let will step a little bit into it. Can the Godhead ever be separated? No, God is one. But at the same time, God is holy and cannot be associated with sin. Jesus took on our sin, he bore the wrath of our sin, So there was a sense in when Jesus felt separation or abandonment in a way that had never happened before. Jesus felt a sense of distance or separation from the Father. And it was out of this awful feeling of separation that Jesus cries, why have you forsaken me? It's posed as a question, but was it truly a question? No, Jesus knew, didn't he? He knew where he was, why he was doing what he was doing, why the Father would react the way he reacted, however we want to understand that. What he does in posing the question is he acknowledges the cost of the sacrifice and the pain of the situation. It wasn't truly a question, and it's also not original to Jesus. What Jesus is doing here is he is quoting Psalm 22, verse 1. Psalm 22, 1, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from my words of groaning? If you were with us last week, I quoted Psalm 22 a lot. It's a a long psalm, um, and through it we see lots of things that were fulfilled in Christ. It's a psalm originally written by David about a righteous man who suffered an incredible suffering, and yet whom God saved. 2017, 2018, I preached the week before Easter and then Easter Sunday. Psalm 22, cut in half. The first half emphasizes the weight of the suffering. The second half emphasizes the salvation of God that's going to come. Which is why I think when Jesus quotes this, he's doing two things at least. If you're gonna be a good preacher, you have to throw in words like at least because it just kind of, it, it helps protect you, Okay. It does two things at least. One, it acknowledges the weight of what's going on, this feeling of separation between God the Father and God the Son. But I think more than that, Jesus knew how Psalm 22 went. He knew all of it. And so perhaps this was an announcement. A righteous man, the righteous man is suffering. But my hope is in God. God. The one who will save me. When he cried out from Psalm 22, it was an announcement of more to come. But let's not get too far ahead of the story. At this moment, three in the afternoon, Jesus is experiencing the wrath of God for sinful men. And it should serve for us as a stark reminder of the seriousness of sin and the length that God had to go to to save us. I already said this. We tend to minimize sin. We don't think of it as serious enough. And so as you're preaching your sermon to yourself, remember that sin is serious, and we know it's serious because Jesus had to die. He had to become our substitute. He had to bear the wrath of God on our behalf. Perhaps you would memorize Psalm 22.1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And allow that to be a reminder to you of the depth of suffering that Jesus endured for that sin that you think is not a big deal. It starts with an awareness of how egregious our sin is. It should change the way we handle our temptation. It should cause us greater grief over our sin. The first part of your sermon It's the seriousness of sin. Don't stop preaching there, though. Right? It's a hard place to stop. And when we say gospel, good news, that in itself is not the good news. The good news is not only the seriousness of our sin, but that Jesus came to pay the price for our sin. What's the second word? Substitute. Don't stop after point one. Keep preaching. In Mark 15, we see a dark sky, a sign of the judgment of God, a cry from Jesus, an announcement of the wrath of God. And then Mark tells us something about the people who were gathered and what they were thinking, what they were saying. Verse 35, some of the bystanders hearing it said, Behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran out and filled a sponge with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, Let's wait. Let's see whether Elijah will come and take him down. Now, a couple of layers to help us understand this. One, it was a common Jewish understanding from the Old Testament that Elijah was coming back. And they kind of talked about what that means, that Elijah would come back, and perhaps he would come to save, to help those in need. This prophet of God would return. So this is something that they believed and something they were waiting for. Elijah will come back. Add that to a dying man... (laughs) in excruciating pain, crying out, Eli, Eli, which Elijah, our word, it's just a transliteration, it's the same word. They could have heard, I think he's calling for Elijah. And so they start talking. This man who claimed to be son of God, he's calling for the prophet Elijah, who we know will come back one day. Wait, let's see if he will return but he looks weak. So someone goes and grabs a sponge and tries to give him something to drink. Perhaps he needs to hang on a little longer so that we can see the miracle. All that to say, their conversation, we know, wasn't correct. But here's what we know. Jesus could have called for help. He could have saved himself, but he doesn't. Through the pain, Jesus remains on the cross, and he does it because this is why he came. Remember what he says in chapter 10, verse 45? For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. We've said it over and over. Jesus knew what would happen at the cross. He knew he was laying down his life. He could have stopped it, but he didn't. He knowingly gave his life as a ransom. And when he died, he made a declaration of victory. Mark says it this way. Jesus uttered a loud cry, and then he breathed his last. This is interesting. I've I've read this. We can talk about it later. A lot of people said that generally... Because of the nature of crucifixion, most people weren't awake when they died. They would have passed out. They would have been unconscious before their final breath came, which makes sense. But for Jesus, it seems different. He remained conscious until the point of his death. And at the point of his death, he knew it had come, and he makes this declaration. Mark just tells us he uttered a loud cry, I usually just like to follow Mark. We're reading Mark. Let's hear Mark. We've got to go to Luke. Luke tells us the words of the cry. Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. You see, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Jesus never was angry at the Father. He never ceased to understand what was going on. He acknowledged the pain. He acknowledged the weight of the situation. And when he died, he said, Father, this is for you. Do with this what you have set out to do. Save your people. It's one of those places where people like to talk about the contradiction of the scriptures, because Mark says he uttered a loud cry. Luke tells us what he said. And then John tells us something different. But no reason to think that Jesus didn't say it all. And Luke took part of it and John took part of it. John says it this way. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. It's done. It's done. Jesus had taken on our sins and bore the wrath of God. And what I want you to consider as you prepare your sermon for yourself. Point one, the seriousness of sin, but there's more. What we see here is that while we have sinned and deserve God's judgment, Christ came as our substitute and he did the work. By grace, you are saved through faith. Not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not of works. None of us can boast. This message should be a message we preach to ourselves that while we were guilty and we do deserve God's wrath, Jesus came as our substitute. And it's not based on anything that we do. And yet, not only do we try to earn God's favor at times, but when we sin, We've all done this, I think, at some at some level. We try to do our own work. So I, I just need to feel guilty for a while. And that will soften God's um, countenance towards me. And then I'll ask forgiveness. That's what we do with our spouse, right? Just gonna let it lay for a while. And then we'll talk about it when things have cooled down. I've heard that from other people. Uh, maybe if I just do some kind of penance. I can atone for it a little bit and then ask forgiveness. So I'll soak or I'll hide in my room. But that's not the gospel, is it? The gospel is that Jesus died to bear the whole penalty for our sins. And when he died, he said, it's done. And I've been guilty of this. I don't want to ask forgiveness. I'll, I'll, let me sleep on it. And then we're going to talk about it in the morning. I need to give time for the sting of the sin to wear off. But we don't have to wait. Jesus has already done what is necessary. It's finished. He bore the wrath of God. He took the punishment, which means when we sin, and we're all still going to sin, we don't have to give up in despair. We don't have to live in guilt. We can look back to Christ and what he did so that we can be forgiven. He paid our debt. Preach that to yourself. Your debt has been paid at the cross. You have a substitute. Maybe in that part of your sermon, you would memorize Romans 4, verse 7. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. (sighs) Blessed am I because my sin is not counted against me. It's the promise for all who are in Christ. Mark says, Jesus said, it is finished. He breathed his last. Jesus died bearing the wrath of God for sinful men. As we keep reading, we see some of what he accomplished. Verse 38. Remember last week I told you these texts don't diagram well? Just and, and, and. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. As we've gone through Mark, there's been certain themes that we've followed. One of those themes that has gone throughout the Gospel of Mark is this idea that Jesus is accused over and over of disregarding the law, of wanting to destroy the temple. We've seen the Jewish leaders become angry because they felt like Jesus was somehow mocking the law or mocking their tradition. Some of it he did. But what we know is that Jesus came to bring something new and better. While the Old Testament law required ongoing offerings and sacrifices, Jesus came to be the once and for all offering and sacrifice. While the Old Testament law required priests as mediators, Jesus came to become our high priest who would bring us into the presence of God. And while the Old Testament system required a temple where people could meet with God, where God's presence dwelt, Jesus came to make a way for anyone who believes to have access through God anytime, anywhere through him. And so throughout his ministry, Jesus has announced that he's coming to bring this new and this better way to God. And right here, God, in a beautiful way, puts a a visual and an exclamation point on the whole thing. We're told that at the moment of Jesus' death, the curtain in the temple, not even going to touch it. You can go and you can debate at lunch about which curtain it was because there was two curtains in the temple. I will argue for the innermost curtain, the one that separated the Holy of Holies from the the rest of the temple. The curtain was torn in two, and it was a symbol, had been a symbol of this barrier between the presence of God and where we are. And it was torn from top to bottom, which tells us God did the tearing. He tore it as a statement, a declaration that the sacrifices and offerings would no longer be needed. A priest would no longer be needed. God had made a final once-for-all sacrifice in Jesus Christ. He provided access to God. How could I not read a substantial portion of Hebrews to you this morning? I won't try to explain it. I'm just going to read it. Hebrews chapter 9. The theme of Hebrews is Jesus is better. We see all the ways that he was better than the law, better than the sacrifices, better than the temple, better than the priests. He came, he fulfilled them all. Hebrews chapter 9, starting in verse 1. Now, even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared. The first section in which there was the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence, it is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the Most Holy Place. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties, but into the second, only the high priest goes, but he just once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through a greater and more Perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, speaking of the body of Christ, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of a defiled person with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God to purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. As part of your sermon, if you don't want to memorize all of that, just go to verse 15. Because of Christ, because a death has occurred, we are redeemed from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. Now, if you're reading through Exodus right now, you just went through all those chapters that talked about the, the, ta- the tabernacle and how it's put together in all of the different sections. Why do we have to read that? It's so we can understand Hebrews. And so we can understand Mark 15. It's because the curtain was torn, because Jesus made the way that we can draw near with confidence to the throne of grace that we might receive mercy and help in the time of need. That's a whole sermon to itself. Just one point in your sermon, though, so don't get hunky. You gotta manage your time, okay? Says who, right? Our temptation is to feel distant from God. We may feel like because of sin, God doesn't want to hear from us. Ever wondered that? Somehow we're kept from him. But that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says that we can be reconciled to God. We can be brought back into fellowship with him. A little bit more of Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19. Therefore, brothers since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us, here's the application of point number two, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. You can enter in. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. Because of the work of Christ, we do not have to wonder if we can go to God. We can know that he has opened the curtain. And this is something we should preach to ourselves. Because of Jesus, I have access to God. Because of Jesus, I have a high priest who ushers me into his presence. Because of Jesus, I can draw near with full assurance. Because of Jesus, my heart and conscience are made clean. And I hope you recognize how preaching that to yourself could change a whole day, when otherwise, you would have been stuck wondering what to do with what you just did and wondering when it's okay for me to go to God again. The way has been made, church. We have a substitute. Jesus came and died, and because of what he did, we can be reconciled to God. Sin, substitute, access. Over the last few weeks, we've been working our way through the final day of the life of Jesus, and maybe you've noticed it. Outside of a small exception with Pilate, there has not been a positive response to Jesus in a long time. He was betrayed by Jesus, arrested by the mob, tried by the Jewish leaders. The crowd called for his crucifixion. He was mocked by the crowd at the cross, mocked again by the Jewish leaders at the cross, mocked by the criminals alongside of him. It's been a long time in the gospel of Mark since anyone has responded positively to Jesus. But now, at his death, Mark records something significant, and we see a shift, a new response. Verse 39, when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the son of God. Centurion, a Roman official, probably the head of the small band of guys who were responsible for the crucifixion. He was there that day, he saw it all. He saw a man who, when he was mocked, did not mock in return. He saw a man that when he suffered did not threaten. And this centurion, no doubt, had been at lots of crucifixions. This one was different. The man accused of claiming to be a king went down without a fight. He didn't call his followers to fight for him. And then there's the other unbelievable things. Why is it dark out here? According to Matthew and Luke, why was there an earthquake? Why does this guy stay conscious to the very end? How did he have the energy to announce his death? What's clear is that even for someone who could have been an impartial witness, there were signs that Jesus was unique. So much so that as Jesus hung on the cross, breathes his last, this soldier looked at Christ and said, truly, this man was the son of God. Now, not to spoil great sermons you've probably heard on this, but we don't know if this is necessarily a confession of faith. Emperors during this day would call themselves sons of God. Jesus had claimed to be a king. At the very least, this soldier is acknowledging this guy is different. We don't know if he believed he was God, We don't know that he was repenting of his sins here. But he saw something. He saw what the Jewish leaders never saw. He saw what the crowds who called for his death didn't see. And of course, Mark recorded this knowing that this was just the beginning. This man was just the first of many Gentiles who would see Jesus as the Son of God. And this brings us full circle in seeing the purpose of Mark's gospel fulfilled. This is just fun stuff that we get to see when we walk all the way through a book. Mark 1, verse 1, Mark gave us his purpose statement. He said, this is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and I told you 50 some odd sermons ago, with some breaks in between, that Mark was going to convince that Jesus is the Son of God And we have not seen that phrase uttered by the lips of any other person in the Gospel of Mark since then. Small exception, some demons did it. No person, nor Mark, throughout the rest of the book, referred to Jesus as the Son of God. But at his death, this soldier stands there and he says, Son of God. The reason Mark wrote was to show that, in fact, Jesus is the Son of God. And after his death, he shows that this truth is being recognized, and will continue to be. This is another thing you can add to your sermon. It doesn't fall within the three points. But the one who was mocked and beaten, the one who was hung on the cross, the one who died, he is the Son of God, which means his death is different than any other death, and it means that through his death we can have hope. It also means he's worthy of our worship and our allegiance which transitions us to these final few verses. Verse 40. There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary, Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James, the younger of Joseph and of Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him, and there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. This is a group that Mark has not referred to before. Luke it mentions them some. Mark hasn't referred to this group of women, but... What we see here is that these are women who had followed Jesus for some time. They had cared for him, maybe provided him with housing or food or clothes. And when he went to the cross, they stayed nearby. More nearby than the 12. And Mark probably included them in part so we can see their faithfulness, their devotion, which is an example. We could talk about the faith of women thankful for the faith of women who have showed examples of what it means to follow faithfully. But Mark may have also included this because they are witnesses not only of the death but of the burial and the resurrection. We'll see them twice more. God gave us these women. He made them bold, he kept them close and probably because of their witness we know more about what happened on this day. There's a lot we could dig into. These ladies. A lot more we could say about the details of Christ's death. But more than anything this morning, I want you to become a better preacher. My hope is that you will be able to take what you've seen here and make it part of sermons that you can preach to yourself. Three things. First, we need to remind ourselves every day of the seriousness of sin, that our sin requires the judgment of God. And as we preach that to ourselves, it should guard us against giving into temptation. It should guard us. It should help us hate our sin and flee. Then we should preach to ourselves and remind ourselves of the substitute that Jesus came and died so that we can be reconciled to God and that it's not up to us to earn our salvation. He did the work, He finished it. It's not yours to earn or to pay penance. Jesus did it. When you're overcome with guilt, preach the gospel to yourself. He has taken your punishment so that you can have fellowship with God. And then you can say something like in closing and then everyone gets happy that you're almost done. And you can preach to yourself about the access that you have through Christ to God Because of him, we can come with confidence to the throne of grace. You can find mercy and help in the time of need. That's a pretty good sermon. It's our hope. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who can bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised. Who is at the right hand of God. Who indeed is interceding for us. Let's pray together. God, there's no way for us to summarize the significance of the death of your son. We have a whole book that points to it and flows from it. But God, I pray for us this morning that you would take something that we have known for a long time and apply it to our hearts in a way that's new and that will lead to change. I've said it kind of jokingly, but There's a lot of seriousness to it, God. Would you make us proclaimers of the gospel? Proclaiming the gospel first to ourselves. And would you help us to believe the things we preach? To know the weight and the seriousness of sin. To believe in the substitute, the one who has finished the work. And that we would walk with confidence into the access that he has provided. We thank you for Jesus. Would you make us more faithful followers of His? It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. It's not a bad way to prepare.